Today, we are continuing our sermon series that we began a few weeks ago. So if you haven't been here, I encourage you to go to the website so you can kind of journey and see where we've been in Scripture. But we've been traveling through a passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. And, and, and in these small chapters, what's fascinating and amazing is that you will discover very quickly that Jesus has so much to say about a vast array of subjects. If you just sat with these passages and prayerfully meditated on them, you would be informed about profound things and grasp the fullness of God's mind on so many subjects. And the title of this series is called Life As It Should Be. And the idea is that often the lives we live, there's a disconnect, a disparity between the life that we live and life as it should be, as God intended. And so our prayer is as we wrestle with these verses and hear Jesus speak to us, that our lives would get a little closer to God's will and plan for us. And so I encourage you weeks ago, bring your physical Bible just to bless my old-fashioned heart, uh, to remind me that you have a Bible. And so if it uh, just gives me hope to let me know that you'll open it during the week. I know it's inconvenient for some, and so you have the app, and this moment every week makes you cringe. Um, and so I love you. Thank you for enduring that. Um, as we open our Bibles and we begin where we left off, we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and onward. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is a throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to worship, to gather with your people, to come around your word, and we pray you'd speak to us. Help us to hear your mind and your heart and to receive your grace. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Magnify him. May we grow in our love and our affection for you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last couple of weeks, some of the things that we have journeyed through is that in the beginning of this text, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus walks us through what's known as the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, what we find is Jesus giving us a description of Christ-like character. He gives us a description of his intention of how he intends and plans to transform our character. Gives us a vision of what our interior and external life is meant to look like. 
And thankfully, as we discuss, the Beatitudes is not a list, the criteria of ways you have to behave in order to be part of God's family, but actually it's because you and I are part of his family and following him, it gives us the trajectory, the target of where he's taking us. He intends to transform us. He takes us as we are, yet he transforms us into his image and his likeness. And then we move forward and Jesus tells us something that's really amazing. He says that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He communicates our influence in this world. He intends, it's God's intention, that as you follow him as an individual, that your individual following of Jesus will have an outward influence in the world. That your faith was never intended to be just some private thing that's hid under a bush, but actually your faith and my faith and our following of Jesus is supposed to influence the world. And we also talked about his relationship to the law. We talked about anger and lust. So many amazing things that Jesus has been speaking about. And today, he talks to us about very delicate topics. And before we dive in, I want to acknowledge a few things. One, I acknowledge that there might be some folks here in this room that maybe you have gone through a divorce yourself. Or maybe you came from a family that had the impact of a divorce. And what we hear today might be tough. But I want to invite you to hear Jesus' words as we get into the details and the context, to hear them not from a vantage point of Jesus trying to condemn or judge, but actually him trying to heal. Him trying to point us to his will and what he desires for our lives and what he desires is not the brokenness that we experience. He desires fullness. So none of this should be taken as condemnation. But for those of us who are not married and you're desiring to be in that kind of a relationship, you're desiring a mate, you're waiting on God, you're pursuing it, I hope that what we hear today gives us a sober reminder that from God's vantage point, that the institution of marriage, the covenant of marriage, is something that he holds incredibly sacred. And I think we've got to wrestle with what Jesus says, especially in the culture that we live in, that often reduces and dilutes the meaning of covenant and the meaning of marriage. And so if you're waiting on God, pursuing that, may the words of Jesus today meet you in your waiting and give you a sober heart as you continue to wait and, and dream of what it might look like, that you enter into it counting the full cost. But I hope also, if you're married here, I hope today what you hear from Jesus gives you a reminder and recenters you of how he views covenant and how he feels about your marriage and how he wants you to view your marriage and how he wants you to work through the challenges that are in marriages as you press toward his design. So, with all of that said, there are some amazing details behind these statements that Jesus makes. At first glance, some of the words that Jesus says feel incredibly cut and dry, no nuance, no context, and it can be very, very challenging. But actually, when we dig deeper, we find some amazing things. It would be helpful to know that at the time that Jesus was speaking, there were two primary schools of thought 
in the rabbinic order when it came to divorce. But in addition to those schools of thought, remember we've been talking about these characters called the scribes and the Pharisees, and their tendency was to take God's law and to reduce it to the most like simplistic adherence to it. What they tended to do was they only wanted to obey it externally. They, they didn't want to obey the spirit of the law. They, they, they only obeyed the letter of it, and they typically interpreted it in a way that gave them the easiest way out. And so they reduced God's law to the standard of their intentions and their desires rather than bringing their intentions and their desires up to God's law. So all of this is going on, but let's talk about these two schools of thought with respect to this key seminal verse in the Old Testament about divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Look at what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. I want you to focus in on the word indecency because the two schools of thought all had to do with how they interpreted the word indecency. And now when I give you this context, you might go from, wow, Jesus takes a really harsh stance to actually, wow, those folks needed Jesus to take a hard stance and, clear, and clarify it because there was some serious mess that Jesus was speaking into. So one camp interpreted indecency just to mean adultery. That if a spouse committed adultery, then they could be handed a certificate of divorce. That's what they interpreted indecency to mean. Another camp interpreted indecency to mean many things, such as if she cooks a bad meal. This is in the written code. If you woke up and found her to be uglier than you remember. Can we say there's a big difference? between these schools of thought. They're taking the word indecency and interpreting it in crazy ways. And so Jesus, as he's speaking here, he's speaking to the misinterpretation of the Pharisees, but he's also speaking to these two different schools of thought. And he's clarifying all this up. This is another thing I tell you, like, I don't get shocked too, too easily. We live in New York. We've all seen some things. I was shocked when I learned this fact that at that time, culturally, married men, it was acceptable for them to have sex with unmarried women and it was not considered adultery. Process that for a second because I know that sounds a bit, let me say that again. A married man, if he had sex with someone who wasn't married themselves, it wasn't considered adultery. So Jesus is not only speaking to the Pharisees' misinterpretation, these two schools of thought, but he's also speaking to a crazy double standard that favored men because, guess what? This is going to shock you. Women, if they had sex with anybody, it was considered adultery. And now, you have to understand, this carried 
some intense weight because this was a crime punishable by death. So Jesus is speaking into all of this, the double standard, the poor interpretation of the law. And what he's saying, and I want you to hear beyond kind of the cut and dry statements, now understanding some of the context, hopefully it doesn't seem as cut and dry, but even beyond that, what's bleeding through these verses is God's heart for marriage. God's heart for marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 to 9 says this. It says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In this passage, we see another instance, again, these, this, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, trying to trick Jesus, catch him in a verbal contradiction. Essentially, it's trying to say, are you going to contradict Moses? Because they rightfully cite the fact that Moses, we just read it in Deuteronomy 24, allowed people to give a certificate of divorce. And what does Jesus say to that? He says, yes. He allowed you to do that because of the hardness of your heart, but then he immediately points them back to, but this was God's ultimate intention. He makes a concession because of the hardness of your heart, but that concession doesn't mar his original intention. What we get from these verses that I hope is really clear, and I think we need to hear it, because nowadays our definitions of covenant, of marriage, have been more informed by the world, by our brokenness, by our trauma, than by the scriptures. I hope you and I come away with, as we hear what Jesus is saying, especially when he describes marriage as this moment where two become one, where through covenant they become one, something entirely new. And yet, if we look at how we view marriage in our day and age, that's typically not the framework that we see it. Most marriages are founded on convenient and comfort. That's the foundation. And so I will love you sacrificially as long as it's convenient and comfortable. The moment it ceases to be convenient and comfortable, all bets are off. 
Can I tell you, in all the years that I've done premarital counseling, marital counseling, I have seen the truthfulness of Jesus' statement about the hardness of heart come to pass in this way. I've seen couples come back from some of the worst situations. I've seen couples come back from their businesses being destroyed, their livelihood being evaporated, and all of a sudden they come back. I've seen couples come back from the loss of a child. You know, statistically, that's one of the few things that's so devastating that couples don't often survive the loss of a child. I've seen couples come back from that. I've seen couples come back from adultery, though that takes a lot of work and it's incredibly painful. The one thing I've never seen a couple come back from is when one or both parties hardens their heart against each other. When we refuse to see each other through any kind of gracious lens, when we don't want to communicate empathy and hold each other with grace, at that point, it's next to impossible to come back. So it makes so much sense that Moses would make this concession, as Jesus says, based on the hardness of heart. And so we, marriages in our day and age, and even among Christians, fall apart so much because rather than being built on God's foundation, it's typically built on the foundation of convenience and comfort. And here's the shocking thing, and honestly, I say this with a lot of pain in my heart because so often I meet Christians, and, and, and when I say this, I have my own marriage struggles that we work through. Our marriage is far from perfect. But when, when, I, when I say this, I've met so many non-Christians have great marriages and sometimes even better than Christian marriages that I've met. And why that's so heartbreaking for me because in those instances what I realize I'm seeing people that don't believe in Jesus use his blueprint better than us. Typically what happens in those marriages, even though they're not rooted in Jesus, they've accepted on a deeper level what sometimes us as Christians don't accept. They've accepted that if this relationship is going to flourish, it has to to some degree represent true sacrificial love. For us as Christ followers, our ultimate example for marriage is the sacrificial love of Jesus. And can I tell you, that sacrificial love as our model, as our true north, will confront every fiber of our hearts that craves for comfort and convenience. If your marriage has not pushed up against your sense of comfort and convenience, wait for it. You haven't been married long enough, I guess. Wait for it. It will happen. It's going to, at a certain point, the butterflies are not enough. At a certain point, the fuzzy feelings will not carry you forward. You will have, there are times where you will have to grit your teeth and say, I made a covenant to love you. (laughs) As inconvenient as this feels. And yet our culture says, the moment that happens, you have a legitimate reason to bail. Jesus is confronting that. Imagine marriages that are built more than, that are built on something stronger than just happy feelings. Imagine marriages built on a foundation of sacrificial love. And so we see 
Jesus is communicating this high view of marriage, this high desire that's contrary to what we see in the world. He's giving us an image of what most of us have not seen and what we long to see. But in the midst, he does acknowledge that because of our brokenness, because of our sinfulness, sometimes marriages don't work out. Sometimes the best, healthiest, God-fearing thing is to actually exit out of that marriage. And I, I want to be careful because, again, in our culture these days, sometimes it feels like all you have to do is breathe a little hard on someone and they just get pushed toward, that's it, I'm dissolving this marriage. I don't want to fight. I don't want to, I, I want to be happy. And, and is God prescribing a lifetime of misery? No. If there is unhappiness in your marriage, that's an indication that something has to be worked on. It's, it's almost like, I don't know, I, you got to pray for me. I have been semi like drawn in I'm late to the game, the pimple popper, that show. Have you seen that show? Oh my gosh. It's, it's, if you haven't seen it and you see it now, you're going to be like, Pastor Chris, you're disgusting. What? <laughs> My kids have walked through the living room like, Dad, why you got to watch this? I was like, these people are suffering. You know, I'm moved. This doctor cares. But this one thing that's fascinating, almost every single person that comes to her office, she'll say, how long have you had this? Five, 10, 15, 20 years. Imagine living life with this pain and just becoming used to it and doing nothing. Sadly, for many people, that's what they think God is calling them to in a life of marriage. You just have to accept you're going to be miserable, you're going to be sad, you're, not, it's not, you're never going to be fulfilled, and you have to endure it in Jesus' name. No. Get healed. Work through it. But even then, there's some situations where we're told sometimes it reaches a situation where you just can't move forward. One of them that we're made aware of is adultery. Now, can you forgive? Can you come back? Can you rebuild trust? Yes. Will it be the most expensive, difficult journey you've ever been? Absolutely. And so if you're in marriage relationship and you're fantasizing about some affair, that that's going to fix something, I have really sobering news. It will destroy more than it could ever fix. And if you actually go through it and try to rebuild the marriage you're in, it will be the most painful, costliest journey. But we're being told, if that happens, that's a legitimate reason to consider divorce. But there's another passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15 to 16. I encourage you to read it on your own time. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15 to 16, the Apostle Paul describes a situation where he says that if a believer is deserted by an unbelieving spouse, that it's okay for them to remarry. When you go into the original language, the meaning of being deserted has two connotations. One connotation is abandonment, the other one is abuse. And so if we want to wrestle with the totality of Scripture, what Jesus is telling us, 
my ultimate will for you is to take the covenant of marriage seriously, to hold it in high regard, to realize it's not just a covenant you're making with each other. God enters that covenant to become one. Fight for your marriage. Keep it. Don't just uh, do away with it with, because you're unhappy or frivolous reasons. Fight for it. However, because of the sinfulness and hardness of our hearts, the concessions that were given are adultery, abandonment, and abuse. In those situations, there's a legitimate ground to pursue this process of divorce. Now, if you're coming today from a divorce yourself that doesn't really fit any of these categories, chances are you might feel a bit guilty or shame. And yet Jesus right now says, I forgive you. I love you. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm showing you my way, but he recognizes our brokenness, our sinfulness. He meets us. This is not shaming us for not reaching the standard of God and perfection, but this is letting us know there is a standard. There is a design that we're living within. But also, not only should we be mindful of the concessions, and I think there's, this is important because I've seen, sadly, I've seen certain Christian marriages that they didn't consider divorce under any grounds because they interpreted like God hates divorce, which he does. And they remained in relationships that were very unhealthy, very unsafe, very abusive. And actually, they had the grounds to pursue an exit, and they didn't because they thought they might be sinning to pursue divorce. If a marriage reaches that point, one, you should get some pastoral care, some counseling, You try to not suffer in silence and on your own. You need support during those times. But don't just choose to suffer and remain and think that's your only pathway because you want to honor God and you can't ever consider a divorce. On the other hand, to our culture that we live in that says you can get divorced for any reason. If anything is inconvenient or uncomfortable, go get a divorce. May the words of Jesus cause us to pause and say, what does God say? What does he desire for us? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just talk about adultery. He talks about oaths. Look at what he says. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make the hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Back then, a verbal oath was taken so seriously to the point that if you verbally committed to something, certain oaths, the only way you can get out of it was death. That was the only honorable way to not have to fulfill that oath. Could you imagine that? You imagine you make plans with your friends and say, hey, Saturday we're going to go for a hike. Yeah, I can't wait. 
and then Saturday morning, and you say, they say, hey, are you going to come? Are you sure? Because, you know, we've got to plan the trip and food. And you're like, yes, I'm going to be there. You verbally made an oath. You said yes. And then Saturday morning, you're like, ah, I don't feel like it. I just want to stay in my pajamas. I just want to watch Netflix. And you say, ah, I don't think I'm going to go. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, dead. You're dead. That's it. <laughs> it's the only way you can escape your dishonor. It Words carried weight, significant weight. And so what they, in that culture, they would swear a lot of oaths to each other. There was like a, a way that they did contracts with one another. And sometimes when they would swear, they would add things that they would swear by in order to kind of add padding and extra weight to their oath. And so sometimes they would, most of the time they would leave God out of it and they would swear by the earth or by their own head. Uh, it kind of reminds me when I was a kid where it was just like, you didn't take somebody seriously until they said, I swear on my mother's grave or something like that. Like, yo, bro, she's not dead. She's, a, she's, she's alive. I know. That's how serious. Oh, okay. He's, he's never going to back out now. And so... They, they, they did a form of that. They added extra stuff to their oaths. And what's interesting is that Jesus says, don't do any of that. He's speaking to his followers. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not an address to everybody. It's an address to his followers. And he's saying, to you, my followers, this is how I want you to live. I want you to live that your yes is your yes and your no is your no. I want you to live with integrity. You know what integrity means? It means that there is symmetry and harmony between the words of your mouth and your inner character. That what you say and who you are has congruence. And so if you say you're gonna be somewhere at a certain time, your inner character says, yes, I'm going to do that. If you commit to something, your character says, yes. That your words and your character don't contradict each other. And if you're like me, as you're hearing these words, you're probably feeling a lot of conviction. Because how many times our words and our character are like on two different avenues? We say things that we don't follow through with. Our words become cheapened. We don't take them seriously. Think about how many lawyers it takes, how many contracts it takes for two parties to agree to a simple transaction. What does that indicate? It indicates that we know that we are people that don't follow through with our word and that we have to ratchet up the consequences in order to try to get us to do this, to do what we simply say we're going to do. Jesus is talking to us about a deep, deep bent in our hearts that if we're honest, we often say things that we don't mean. We say things that we don't mean to fulfill. How many have ever seen someone and you said, we should hang out? And you know in your heart that basically meant, I will never see you. <laughs> 
you will not show up on my calendar. How many have ever said, hey, I'm five minutes away, and you didn't even put your shoes on, you, you, you're, you live an hour away, and you haven't even started to move? Or a work situation comes up, it's like, hey, uh, are you, today's the deadline, are you going to hand in the project? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm working on it right now. And right now, from this work from home situation means you're making some oatmeal, you know, in your stove. And working from right now means you open the email at that moment. You know, you haven't done anything. Jesus is convicting us and speaking to us because imagine, I want you to imagine this, and you have to use a lot of imagination. Imagine a world where people follow through with what they say. Imagine a world where what someone says, you can count on it happening. And if you can imagine that world, Jesus is actually calling you and I to create that world. That in a world of lies and contradictions and, and legal caveats and loopholes, he says, you, my people, will live differently. Amongst you, your yes will be yes and your no will be no. You know, the other day I had a moment where I had to afterwards repent to my 13-year-old daughter. Um, I've been on a journey when it comes to this, and full disclosure, you could ask my wife. Earlier years, um, my 20s, man, I was shifty. If I said I was going to be somewhere, it was a guessing game. I, apparently, my friends didn't know. Just like they're rolling dice. Is Chris going to show up? I would cancel last minute, I'd plan a meeting and not follow through with it. There were times where I organized meetings and I didn't show up to the meeting I organized. It was really bad, yes, yes, it was bad. And so I had a lot of repentance to do in that area. Um, and, and especially like with being on time. Uh, I remember this one time, I was young when I first started preaching in my 20s, I was invited to come preach at this church and I actually showed up a little bit late and this, this pastor who was older than me, um, who was like a really father figure, he lovingly said, how many people are in this audience? And it was like about 200 people. He said, how much is five times 200? And I didn't know where he was taking this math. And when I added it up, he said, that's how much time you stole from all these people because you were late. So I kicked them in the head and I ran. No, I'm joking. And so, no, it was convicting. I was just like, man. So I've done some work in this area, and I got to admit, I've gone so far the other, on the other side of the pendulum that I forget I used to be late. I forget I used to. So I have a low tolerance these days for lateness, for planning stuff and being canceled. Oh, I don't have a lot of grace. I'm trying to work. Jesus is working with me. Anyway, woke up one day, and we're trying to help my seven-year-old be better at cleaning his room. Needs a lot of help. The other ones are learning, thank God. Michael, and uh, rather Alexa and Luke, they're learning. I haven't thrown out the garbage in months. They do it. I don't load and unload the dishes. We've successfully delegated that, trying to delegate next. The laundry and eventually rent, have them pay our rent. No. <laughs> um, little by little, trying to get there. Michael's room, oof. So I wake up one morning, 
feeling really generous. And I go to Alexa, I say, hey, honey, I know it's not your responsibility. You didn't create that biohazard, he did. Your room is your room and you clean it, proud of you, thank you. Can you help with Michael's? And as a reward, I will pay you handsomely for it. So she said, oh, I thought it was fair. Wasn't asking her, to, she's doing something she didn't create. And then I get back to work. And I'm noticing, I'm like, huh, she hasn't gone in Michael's room yet. That's, that's interesting, okay. And so keep working, I'm like, still not in Michael's room. And then I finally go to her, she said, look, Dad, I cleaned my room, um, but I didn't, I didn't get a chance to clean Michael's room, and also my friends want to hang out now, and so I got to go. I was just like, and she presented it like if it was like a Sophie's Choice moment. You know, like, I, I, I can't clean the room, I got to hang out. I'm just like, no, I don't care. You know? And I got so mad because she went against her word that I said, if you don't keep your word, you will exist less to me as a person. Judge me all you want. I, uh, I'm being honest here. You try parenting, all right? You try it. Your kids are better than mine's, whatever. And so afterwards, I was like, oh, Chris, what? that was evil. So I asked God to forgive me, and then like shamefully with my head down, like, hey, honey, I'm sorry. That was a little intense, and um, forgive me. Do you forgive me? And she's like, yeah, I forgive you. And then I doubled down and said, but you better keep your word because <laughs> people that don't keep their word end up being poor and unemployed, and then nobody will trust you, and do you want to beg for your life? You know, like. We all find ourselves in a different place in our relationship to keeping one's word. Maybe you're at a place where you realize, man, I don't take my word seriously. I don't even believe things I say. Maybe Jesus is saying, no, you need to take your word seriously. Or maybe like me, you've swung so far on the other end that you're not gracious toward people that don't keep their word. And you judge and you're not humane. At the end, both when it comes to marriage and keeping our word, Jesus is giving us a totally different vision for life than what our world invites us into. Imagine marriages that don't have hints of abuse or abandonment or unfaithfulness. Imagine a world where people say what they mean and mean what they say. And yet, though Jesus is speaking to his followers, if we're honest, as his followers, how often do we get this wrong? If we're honest, how often do we say things we don't mean on carrying through? How often do we take God's standards and interpret them in a way that gives us the easiest way out? How often do we take God's words and interpret them in ways that favor some over others? In this case, favored men over women. And in the midst of all of this brokenness, we meet a faithful Jesus 
You know, it's amazing to a, a people who are prone to be unfaithful and untrue, we worship a God who's never been unfaithful and who's never been untrue. You realize there's not one word that's ever come out of God's mouth that's had a tinge of falsehood. What he promises, he follows through. And what blows my mind when I was reading this, Jesus talking to us about adultery and unfaithfulness is that this is coming from a God who is unswervingly faithful to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness, in the midst of our brokenness. A God who does not relent. You know, even though Jesus gives us concessions in marriage to, to exit the marriage, do you know that Jesus takes none of those concessions toward us? Do you know that we've been unfaithful? We've been, a bit, we've been distant. We have been so broken toward him, and yet he doesn't look at us and says, for these reasons I'm done, this relationship is dissolved. He faithfully pursues and pursues and pursues. And so for the hope for us that are broken in these ways and, and veer toward this is that we worship a God who is completely other, who has none of these things in his soul and in him and in his love we can be transformed and made new. Regardless of where you're at with these things that Jesus has spoken of today, we have an opportunity to worship a God who offers healing and not judgment, who offers hope, who promises and delivers what he promises, who's faithful. With that, I wanna invite us, if we could stand, as we stand and the worship team comes forward in these next few moments, I want to invite us to turn our hearts to God in worship, in prayer, in confession, whatever is appropriate for you to respond to God at this moment, let's turn our hearts to Jesus. And as we do in these next few moments, the prayer team is in the back to my right, to your left. And over these next few moments as we worship, if any of the words that were shared earlier resonate with you, we would love for you to go and receive prayer. Let God minister to you. Or if anything has come up, maybe you carried something with you today and that's just what you need prayer for, go and receive prayer. Or maybe something's been stirred up for you during the message. Let's turn our hearts to God. Could I invite us, if you feel comfortable, could we raise our hands in the presence of God in a posture of surrender, of worship, a posture to receive, a posture that says, I'm not hiding anything, I'm not holding anything back. You have my attention, God. us. We've been so broken by false words and lies and commitments that were reneged on. 
and unfaithfulness. You, you see the brimming wounds in our hearts even now. Meet us, living God. Return to you.